All right, if you would be turning your Bibles to Romans chapter four, verses one through eight. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I want us to walk away with this morning. It's this, that our justification through faith alone gives to us God's righteousness and removes the weight of our sins. Let me say that again. Our justification through faith alone gives to us God's righteousness and removes the weight of our sins. If you would, give your attention to the reading of God's word. This is Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted also as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works." Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into this, we've got to remember this is a, a part of the section where Paul is uniquely unpacking what does it mean to be justified through faith alone. Remember, uh, he's going to unpack each of the pieces of that great statement of our faith, which is that it is by God's grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are saved. And so it, it will be a great beneficence to us to be able to better understand and apply what does it mean uh, through faith alone. And so here, what Paul is going to do is, is give us some more stuff to work with, and he's going to continue through chapter 4 to do that, and he's going to start to weave in the other portions uh, of that great statement as we go into chapter 5. And so what he's doing is showing them that they are unified. Remember, the book of Romans is a letter to a church that is completely uh, against each other. The Jewish Christians are at war with the Gentile Christians, and Gentile, by the way, just means not a Jew, and they are deeply divided on a number of issues, and they've tried to put forth their bona fides. Well, Paul is taking those bona fides away, and he's showing them, he showed them that they were unified in their brokenness, in their sinfulness. But because he is gracious, he didn't leave them there. He's now showing them that they are unified in the means by which that brokenness and sinfulness can be redeemed. That it is justification uh, through faith alone that, that resolves that. And so uh, he is trying to get them to see, no, you, this isn't something for you to fight about. It's something for you to be united around. And he's going to do that by saying, this is what has always been. This is the historical scarlet thread that runs throughout all of Scripture. This was God's law of faith from the beginning. And he's going to use the testimony of two critical witnesses, uh, Abraham the patriarch and David the king. But before we step into the text, let me ask you a question to prepare us. Uh, what have you gained from your various sins or your disobedience to God? Now, you could become all false, humble, and say, well, I know the answer to this question. Nothing. I have gained nothing. Well, you lie. You've gained much, as a matter of fact, which is why we often return to it, right? We did get some pleasure from doing that which was disobedient to God, or we wouldn't have done it and hid it, or done it and proclaimed it at the top of our lungs, right? There is 
a, a momentary beneficence to our sin. It, it satisfies something within us. But it's critical that we recognize that what it satisfies is not the eternal aspect of us. It satisfies only the temporary, which is why we keep having to try to return to it, to renew it, to find something more out of it. Whereas that question, while it's important, the next question I think is even more important. And it's a question I don't think we actually have the capacity to fully answer because we see through a glass darkly, but to gain some aspect of knowledge of what sin has cost us would benefit us, right? There's that great scene in the Chronicles of Narnia movie that it actually is not in Lewis's book. It's, I think it's in the Prince Caspian one, right? Where they storm the castle in arrogance, right? They're gonna take the queen down by might. The king is sick of it and he is gonna do something about it. So they storm the castle. And if you saw the movie, spoiler alert, and if you haven't seen it by now, that's just that's that's, that's, that's on you. That's not on me. Uh, but spoiler alert: they uh, lose horribly. In fact, it costs many of them their lives. And as they're trying to retreat, and the queen is trying to trap them all in the castle, a minotaur sacrifices himself to keep the gate open, and then the gate crushes him. Now, the king is able to look back and see the cost of his sin the cost of his arrogance. One of the most beautiful pictures of that I have ever seen because so often we don't get that benefit. We don't get to know the full cost and weight of what we have done to someone else, but he was able to see in real numbers and in real time how deeply and truly costly his arrogance was. Now, I'd taken my daughter, I think it was what, her ninth birthday? Yeah, something like that. I had a bunch of little girls with her. I am weeping at the end of the row. And all of our little friends who are concerned for me go, hey, is your dad going to be okay? And Kimberly said, yeah, he does this all the time, especially with Chronicles of Narnia stuff. And so, uh, but, but just think for a second, what if, I don't know if it would even be God's mercy. I think it's God's mercy that we can't see the full cost of our sin in some measure. But what if you could look back and see? And what if you could see it in real time unfolding? See, what we have to confess and admit, our sin is costly. It's costly to our relationship with God and how we interact with him and how we can grow in discipleship. It is costly to our relationships with other people. It's costly to us. It keeps us from actually being able to love ourselves so that we can love our neighbors, right? It, it keeps us from actually being able to, to obey what God has called us to do. But praise be to God that both of these questions are resolved in our justification through faith alone. They become ultimately meaningless if we are in union with Christ, and praise be to God. Meaningless in the sense of that, that they have no sway over us anymore. We can truly be free. So uh, as we turn to the text, let's see the testimony of the two witnesses, the king and the patriarch, and how uh, Paul is trying to help us see what we gain and what we lose in justification through faith alone, and why both are a good thing and both are an applicable thing. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, it's very important in this section that we recognize what Paul has already established when he uses the term works. Now, what he's saying here is works are anything that you do to try to gain God's favor, anything that you do to try to impress God. Now, let's pause for a second. 
God is the creator of the universe who is eternal, who is, who is all-knowing and all-powerful. What exactly do you think you could bring to him that would cause him to go, I ain't ever seen nothing like that before. I have never witnessed something so beautiful, so glorious, so creative as what you have brought to me. It's not possible. And yet, the great refrigerator in heaven is covered with our finger paintings. Uh, he does, and this is why it's, it's all the more important, that he who cannot be impressed chooses to condescend and take joy in those of us who cannot impress him. How many of you have relationships with people that have nothing to do with their ability to impress or benefit you? How often do we judge our relationships based on the beneficence, the cost-benefit analysis? Whereas God, what does he gain from us? Well, what he gains mysteriously, beautifully, gloriously is joy. He seems to take great joy in us and the things that we do that look like him, that reflect his righteousness, even though it is a finger painting by comparison. And he loves to see how that then impacts those around us as we bear witness to our justification. So here with Abraham, if Abraham had, had worked and worked and worked, God would not have been impressed. In fact, you, you know the passage from Isaiah that our righteousness, and Chris quoted this uh, in his sermon, our righteousness essentially is just disgusting filth before him. I want to pause for a second and push against something here, uh, and Chris didn't, didn't take it this way, so it's not Chris being tuned up in front of you. Uh, just to be clear, he, he handled it rightly, but too often we use that passage for our righteousness in Christ. That passage is only referring to any attempt that we make outside of being justified in the righteousness of God through Christ to impress God. So once we are in Christ, our ability to please God if you remember from Revelation 19, becomes the very thing that will clothe the bride of Christ. She will not be covered with filthy rags from us. She will be clothed in the accomplished righteousness, the things that we do uh, in Christ, not that make God love us, but are a display of God's love for us. Do you understand the difference? And too often, we like to kind of lower ourselves when we are beloved. We like to uh, continue in what I would refer to as a worm theology, suggesting that we are not sons and daughters of the God Most High. No, you, you are crowned with honor and glory if you are in Christ. And that should be a great gift to us. We should not go around acting as if what we do is meaningless. No, it has been granted the greatest meaning of all because you're in Christ. And so, uh, that being said, you gotta, be, you gotta be watchful for that. I think that's a misapplication of that Isaiah passage. And what that does sometimes is actually move us into what I'm gonna get into with David. It allows us to actually cling to some aspect of our sin and our shame and our guilt instead of surrendering it in full as we are called to do by faith. And so, but here, Abraham understood, it was very well understood that the father of all nations could not do anything 
to gain God's love. Now let's recount his story for just a moment since uh, Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6 here. If we back up a bit, remember that Abraham had another name. His name was Abram. And when God calls him, he calls him from a pagan land. Abram didn't even worship God. He worshiped foreign deities. And so the Lord pierces all that darkness and says to Abram, I need you to let go, surrender, submit. You need to surrender all that makes you safe and secure in this world. And I need you to submit to me calling you to a place that you don't know anything about. And I'll let you know when you get there, and I'll let you know why. Think about that for a second. In his circumstance, to give up his land, it's not like now you give up what well, actually is, maybe is like now with the way the market is. But, but if, if he gives up his land, who else is going to give him some more in the Middle East? Like they didn't sell land in the Middle East like we sell land here. And to give it up was essentially to cut himself off from his family name and all that that would have meant for him. So, so Abram was giving up an awful lot to go and follow the Lord. And as he does, the Lord takes him outside in Genesis 15, shows him the stars of the heavens and says, your, your progeny, those who will come from you will be more numerous than the stars of the heavens. And you remember how Abram responds. He says, well, Sarah and I are almost 100, and if we're going to have as many as the stars of the sky, I think you best get started, because we ain't got not one kid right now. That's my translation, by the way. That's not the actual Hebrew. Uh, but his point is valid, isn't it? Here, God is saying, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and he's like, I don't even have a kid. All I got is this, this one kind of family member that is as close as I can get. And God says, he will not be the covenant child. And remember how Abram responds. He says, it says that he believed God. He submitted to the redemptive will of God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the story doesn't end there. And what's interesting is that Abram fails miserably to keep his faith in many respects. Although ultimately he does, what we see in his example along the way is something pertinent to us. That from the moment that we believe doesn't mean that the journey is over. No, in fact, it's begun in earnest. Because you remember, he and Sarah gave it a good decade or more waiting on a kid. And no child came. And they didn't consult God, if you remember in the text. They just talk amongst themselves, which is always where the best ideas come. And he and Sarah decided, well, why don't you be intimate with one of the servants, Hagar? And we'll, we'll help God out. And sure enough, the Lord blesses Hagar with a child, Ishmael. And you remember how Sarah responded to God's faithfulness as they understood it. She beats Hagar, she beats Ishmael, and they cast them out to die. Now think about that for just a moment. Abram takes in the covenant child, as far as he knew it, and sent that child into the wilderness to pay for his sins, as he understood it. And you remember God shows up, and he says something very interesting before Abram can even open his mouth. He shows up and he says, Abram, I am your shield and defender. Walk before me and be blameless. What did God just do? 
He forgave Abram before Abram could do anything worthy of said forgiveness, and Abram falls down on his face. He worships, and God changes his name to Abraham and Sarai's to Sarah and says, what you have done cannot break the covenant. Because you do remember back in 15 that when the covenant was being ratified, the Abrahamic covenant, which Paul calls the gospel in Galatians chapter 3, Abram's in a deep sleep in a darkness that could be felt. It was like he was in this dark bubble. And God passed through the animals that had been cut in half as part of that covenant ceremony that basically says, if one of us doesn't keep this covenant, the curse falls upon the one who doesn't keep it. Well, interestingly, Abram didn't participate. He was out. It was only God who passed through. So the full of the covenant curse was to be God's to bear, not ours if it did not come to pass. But the Lord is faithful and it has come to pass. And so if the father of all nations, the patriarch can only be saved, be justified through faith alone, and how much more us? And that's the point that Paul is making to them is that nobody can flex greater bona fides than Abram himself. No one gave up what Abram gave up. No one saw what Abram saw. But even more importantly, he was making sure they understood this isn't a new idea. It is the law of faith that has been true from the beginning. And he's showing them what you gain through that is God's righteousness, which is something that we would benefit from meditating on on a regular basis. You know how we talk about around here the necessity for gratitude and how we might cultivate that, that on the Lord's Day Sabbath, it would be a good practice for you and your family to gather at some point and just talk about, discuss how God has been good in the previous week. And leave no stone unturned. Be specific. Be detailed. So that you can cultivate and grow in recognizing just how much God holds together. And as an aspect of that, to consider how you being justified through faith alone is in yet another week of your life is yet another great gift and possibility that can have eternal implications for you and all those around you. But he turns from, from Abram to yet another key figure. He turns to King David. And so, again, let me remind you that the, the word work or works, in this case, Paul views negatively because of, of um, it is related to us trying to earn our salvation. Picking it up in verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to righteousness. Let me pause for just a minute. What are the wages of sin? What is our due? Death and judgment. Now, praise be to God that that is not all there is. But if we are going to try to earn our salvation, the most we can earn is death and, and judgment as a result of that, the second death. So it's critical that we recognize that you can't earn it. You get to enjoy it. You get to be empowered to live it out and understand it. And so here, he's getting to the point where he's going to show that even this was true for King David, the one who was elect to serve as the covenant king from which Christ would come himself. 
He goes on to quote David. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Now, this is very interesting that he chooses Psalm 32. Listen to the language. It just sounded like he was talking about just kind of working and accounting and that kind of stuff. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds. Did you hear that? Whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin because of the coming due wage. Now, let's think for a second. What was the occasion of Psalm 32? Why did David have to pen multiple penitent psalms? Well, if you remember, David, when kings should have been out at war, chose to stay home and get bored. Well, if you know anything about bored kings, they always cause trouble for everybody. And he was kind of wandering around on the roof and happened to see this beautiful woman named Bathsheba and decided in his sinfulness, well, I'm bored. I'll have a little bit of fun. Nobody has to know. But there's a problem. She got pregnant. And David knew that he couldn't murder his own son. So he came up with this idea, okay, I'll just have Uriah, her husband, come back. And surely since he's been away from her for a while, he will want to hang out with his beautiful wife. And voila, problem solved. See, there's a problem in that Uriah was a more virtuous man than even the king. And Uriah, if you remember, said, if my men sleep in the field without their wives, I don't sleep with my wife, I sleep outside. And David was like, all right. Uh, let's get him drunk. Let's try that. Remember what Uriah said. If my men have no time for festivity and drink, I have no time for festivity and drink. I pour it out. And David said, well, he ain't getting it. So I think what I'm going to have to do is kill him. So interestingly, David is asking Uriah to serve as his mediator for his sin. He's asking him to die for what he's done and have that cover up somehow what he's done. So he sends him, and not just him, but a bunch of unnamed people, because you got to know, if you send just Uriah to get killed by archers, that kind of looks obvious. See, there's got to be some more collateral damage in this whole thing. So we don't even know their names and their families who suffered at the hands of David's sin. So they all get to participate in trying to mediate David's sin. Of course, David thinks he's gotten away with it, until the Lord sends a prophet named Nathan. And remember, he confronts him, And it costs that child's life. And so here we have the the king who's a man after God's own heart. The elect who is the, the covenant promise, the lineage of the king. And if he, in his election, must also be justified through faith alone, when he sins, how much more? You and I. And so in the testimony of these two witnesses, we, we see that there is a, a, a redemptive history, that, that it has always been. This is the law of faith. And what's interesting about what David is saying here is he uses this term blessed. Now remember, we've talked about this before. Blessed is a technical term. And it means that, that we are blessed when we have access to God when we can stand in his presence. Remember our benediction from Romans 5 that we've been, we've been hearing week in and week out and that glorious declaration that we have access 
through faith in Christ Jesus to stand in the grace before God himself at peace. That means we are blessed because that which has kept us from being able to be in God's presence, our sin has been removed in full, which is the other great beneficence, not just that we have been granted imputed righteousness, Think about if you were granted God's righteousness but left with the weight and the fear of your sin. When will the penny drop? When will it be costly? When will I be found out? But instead, what our justification through faith alone allows us to do is no longer to fear. Now, I'm concerned that this is an area that many of us actually are, are guilty of not surrendering our sin in full. We tend to do what I call theological obfuscation, which is going to be the title of my book when it comes out. I'm kidding. It won't sell one copy. I'll have to give them all away. Nobody wants a book with obfuscation in the title. But we tend to hide behind the broad theological declarations. We are all sinners in need of grace. We are all guilty before God instead of Releasing in full, surrendering in full to the Lord himself. It's not something we have to do with one another, but to the Lord himself to admit that as much as we can understand how deeply broken and sinful and arrogant and prideful we are. It's one of the reasons we at Christ Community do a confession of sin week in and week out just to remind ourselves that we are free to confess We are free to release and give up. Many of us, unfortunately, I think, read that and either try to figure out, all right, am I guilty? Am I not? Does this apply to me or no? Whereas what you should do instead, it's not intended to be there to remind you as the the Scottish Puritan would do uh, at the beginning of every sermon, he would say, you worms, you had the audacity to return again this week. Well, I guess you'll hear from me again. No, that's not what that's intended to do. That confession of sin is actually, you need to read, make sure you pay attention to all those words around it, the fact that we have an assurance of pardon to follow just in case we have missed that God is saying, I want you to be completely free of your shame and your guilt. Hold on to none of it. And too often we like to hold on to little parts of it, don't we? Instead of being willing to surrender in full and submit to what it is the Lord is calling us to do, to love him and love our neighbor, which, again, remember the critical piece. I cannot love my neighbor if I don't know that I myself have been loved. Right? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Too many of us, in holding on to different aspects of our sin, keep a worm theology at work in our own hearts and minds. And some of it I think we do so that we can kind of keep out of the fray. So God may not call us to go be a missionary to Afghanistan anytime soon. Or Iran or or somewhere else. But that's not, again, that's you trying to earn your salvation or impress God. No, what he wants you to do is to be able to live where he has placed you in his sovereignty in the fullness of the beneficences of your justification through faith alone which is his imputed righteousness, his great gift, which allows you to to be pleasing to him, 
and for you to be free of your sin. How many of us cling to so many different aspects of our own sin and we continue to either prosecute ourselves or we prosecute other people? Think about how this is, affects us between each other. If justification through faith alone removes the totality of sin from those around us who are in union with Christ, then who are we to prosecute further and further and further? Who are we to sit as judge over that which has been declared as far as the east is from the west no more? And yet, this is one of the ways we can be more practical in applying our justification through faith alone is how we forgive ourselves and those around us, right? How we love one another becomes critically important in reference to these truths. These are not abstract theological concepts. They matter. They are practical. And remember, he's saying this to a church that's divided, right? A church that's tired, a church that's anxious. Does this sound like us at all these days? Are we not anxious and tired? Right? That baby is anxious and tired, ready to go. And so, so that's us. That's a wonderful picture of who we really are. Instead of those who are being able to enjoy the full beneficence of what God has given us, we, so much has gone on. I just met with a friend of mine this past Friday who's on staff at a church down in Warner Robins, and he's, he's one of the nicest human beings I have ever met. You may say, he's your friend? Yeah, he is, because God is gracious. And so, and so, but he is worn out. He said, every decision we make, we make somebody on some extreme angry, and they threaten to leave. And they, everybody's threatening in every different direction. And he said, I'm just, I'm just tired of it. I'm weary. And I said to him, I said, Josh, well, do remember your people are weary too, that some of that frustration and that anxiety and stuff is coming from a place of their weariness. Everybody is just gassed right now. And we just, I mean, think about it. We got a hurricane churning up, uh, ready to hit Louisiana as if COVID wasn't bad enough in our country. We've got all the stuff we're trying to process as we're watching the horrible unfolding of Afghanistan. We, we, I mean, and that's just a couple of things. There's so much more than that. Many of us struggling just in our own homes, in our own neighborhoods. We are tired. So this is where Justification through faith alone can put some gas back in the tank for us. And in fact, it's a great gift to us that this morning we're going to get to witness a baptism and be reminded of our justification through faith alone. And this is where we as baptized ones need to use and improve upon our baptism to, to be reminded of the great gift that Christ is to us. That, that Remember, in baptism, we have both of the things that are mentioned here. Christ takes the full weight of our shame, guilt, and sin upon himself, satisfying the wrath of God, meaning you don't have to fear anything toward God any further. He is not your enemy. He is your loving, heavenly Father because of what Christ has done. And that is represented, signified in your baptism. And it'll be signified in the baptism that we'll bear witness to here in just a few moments. And then even further, that Christ rises from the waters of judgment 
to newness of life, to resurrected power and glory and imputes that to us so that we could walk in newness of life and appreciate the righteousness that has been imputed to us or given to us and to live that out in such a way that is pleasing to the Lord and of eternal benefit to our neighbors and families. Why would we not want to walk in that kind of power? And the beauty of baptism as sacrament of the church is that God promised something specific in it, just as he does at the Lord's table, that he uniquely uses it to form us and fashion us into further the image of Christ. I don't know how it works, but I'm glad it works. I don't always feel something with every baptism that I participate in, but I'm thankful to know that the Lord is faithful to be working in it regardless of my understanding. And amen. And so as baptized ones, we get the benefit of having our faith nourished and built up and us furthered into understanding this justification through faith alone. Listen to what Robert Haldane says about this passage. He says, if then Abraham had not been justified by his works, but by the righteousness of God imputed or given to him through faith, and David, speaking by the Spirit of God, had declared that the only way in which a man can receive justification is by his sin being covered by the imputation of that righteousness. Who could suppose that it was to be obtained by any other means? He's saying, what arrogance it would be for us to say, well, the patriarch and the, and the covenant king, I don't care what they think or say. I want to go my own way. He's saying, what kind of arrogance would it take to say, this is not the way? And he goes on. By these two references, the apostle likewise shows that the way of justification was the same from the beginning, both under the old and the new dispensation. Now, for those of you who just died inside, because I use the word dispensation, he's not using it in the way that you died inside. He's using it to talk about between old and new covenant. You're going to be okay. This he had before intimated in saying that both the law and the prophets bore witness to the righteousness of God, which is now manifested and which is upon all them that believe. Praise be to God that he redeems us despite our best efforts and despite our worst efforts and sets us free from the consequences of both. So how has your justification by faith alone been an ongoing gift to you in terms of what you have gained? This is worthy of your meditation. Think about what all you have gained because the Lord chose to justify you, meaning make it as if you were always righteous, always a covenant heir, always a son or daughter, meaning that whatever you did when you weren't has been forgotten. What a gift that is to us. And we need to meditate on how that plays out on an ongoing basis. And then on the opposite side, to, to meditate on what it has taken from us, meaning what is it removed? The weight of shame and guilt and sin. And think about what a gift that can be and is. That you don't have to live under the sword of Damascus. You don't have to wait for the guillotine to fall. Now, this should not lead you to go and sin more boldly. No, this should cause you to worship more fervently. This should cause you to have greater gratitude for what the Lord has done in and for you. 